Okay, let's get to Romans, Romans chapter 10. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. I know if you've been gone for a week, that might confuse you because uh, last week we did all of chapter 11, and there's a reason for that. Uh, I think Neil told most of us that uh, I asked Neil months and months ago if he would do the remnant of Israel, which is the subject matter of chapter 11, and he was going to be gone this week. So in the, in the calendar, chapter 11 was happening now. And uh, so I said, I don't care. Do, do it early, and then we'll come back and fix whatever problems we have in 10. So that's our efforts today. I don't think it's going to be too complicated. So we're, we're going to pick up and finish 10. We've already finished 11, if you haven't heard it. I, I just was reminded, I was sitting in the 8 o'clock service um, last week, and I'm so thankful for Neil. Just to have someone with that experience and that testimony and, and that kind of wisdom and, and for us to get that is, is rare. In fact, we packaged his testimony and sent it to all the other redemption congregations. So they're seeing that today, which is really cool blessing to the church. So um, just uh, that's from me to you. He's a great guy. All right. Uh, Romans chapter 10. My story, my spiritual story started in 81, 1981. I grew up as a... Uh, pastor's kid in a church, um, and sin started to stack up in my life, and uh, that's not a problem until it's a problem, do you know what I'm saying? Most of us spent a season of time doing whatever we wanted to do for the reasons we wanted to do it, and we didn't care, no harm, no foul, and that was me, and it became a problem when it became a problem. Suddenly, these two words showed up in my life called guilt and conviction, and uh, I didn't know what to do with it. In fact, I was, I was worn out by it. I didn't sleep very well, and I didn't eat very well. I was a 19, 20-year-old dude with a whole, whole bunch of secrets and a, and a whole bunch of sin, and, and I, I didn't know how to respond to it, and so I didn't trust very many people to tell that story to. Clearly, I thought it would crush my father, so I didn't go to him, and so I went to my brother, and I said, okay, here's, here's my story. And he's not a theologian by any stretch of the imagination, but he did share a sentence with me that changed my life. I said, I don't know what to do. I, I knew this about hearing of, of God for 20 years of my life, that he hated sin, and he was coming to deal with it. So there was some paranoia and fear growing in my life at the time that God was going to squash me. And he just simply said this, real simple. He said, all right, stop sinning and pursue Jesus. Well, that's, that seems too simple to be true, and it was true, and yet it was so profound I, I just really, I can just confess it and move on. And you would think a pastor's kid should know that, but I, did, I didn't remember that in my, in my despair of sin, and I did, and that was the moment the lights came on. And when the lights came on for me, like, like I, I believe this, that God doesn't change your personality when he saves you. He uses your personality when he saves you, right? Some of you can, can have testimony to this that you're convinced that what you are is not what God needs, but God saves not only you and your soul, but he takes what he made you to be uniquely and uses it in the kingdom. I'm an extremist to the 10th millionth power, and as soon as the lights came on, I went nuts. And I went nuts. I loved Christ. I was reading the Bible. I was sharing my faith. I was starting Bible studies. I was serving. I wanted to do ministry. I was going off the hook crazy. I had a job at the time working for a uh, flooring and tile store. So I would drive into Chicago with a loading truck, and I would load up carpet and, and tile, and I would drive around the city dropping off the product. And they had this wonderful, unbelievably high-tech audio device called an 8-track tape player in the truck, okay? <laughs> And I, I would drive around the city of Chicago listening to the cheesiest Christian music you ever heard in your life. And I was in love. And I would drive around crying and singing because he saved me. 
I would listen to the Imperials and Randy Matt. I'm, I'm blowing some of your minds. The Imperials, Randy Matthews, Randy Stonehill, Keith Green, the Resurrection Band. I would just listen to it. I would sing it all day long. I'd look over at people watching me driving around, and I'm crying and singing, and I know they think I'm nuts. But I was in love. I was in love. I was smitten that somehow God could so cover me that I would go that free. Now, everybody who's a Christian in here has a story. Maybe, maybe for you, it was this one particular, powerful, cataclysmic moment where God just stopped the presses and got your heart. Or maybe it was over a period of months or years that God just wooed you or drug you to your senses. But we all have a story, don't we? And, and here's what I remember of the time in my life. I just remember being so um, appreciative of... God and, and how he did what he did. I was appreciative of my brother and my father and all the things I thought I didn't hear and ignored and I was just thankful all the time and, and I saw how God worked all those things through and uh, there was such an appreciation. At the same time, I was a little bit confused. I, I, I was different and I would ask the question, why me, why now? And how come I went through 20 years and never heard this? Why did it ever make sense to me? And yet what we've discovered in, in even the book of Romans is that God is so faithful to, uh, in his time, in his way, to open up blind eyes to see, to store our senses. And so I know that you have that story, and uh, what's sad about the Christian walk many times is that the moment we're saved, we express more joy and gratitude than we do when we've walked 20 years with Christ, and we kind of take it for granted, and, and I'm no different what we're going to look at in these verses, these eight verses, 14 through 21 today, Paul, Paul is telling us that wonderful story and how it happened. For each and every one of us, there's a, there's a sequence, in other words, that, that God is faithful to when he opens the hearts and the minds of sinful men. And he lays it out for us. And, and to be honest with you, this is, these are some of the things we typically don't think through in sequence. We're just glad we got saved. We're just glad that God, in the midst of my moment, saw my sin and, and, and labored me with guilt and conviction and brought my brother who had a sentence that opened my eyes to believe. I don't care much more than that, but here's the reality of it. It's kind of like I was trying to figure out an analogy. You, you, all of you have probably next to your bed a nightstand and a light. And right on the wall, there's probably a little box and there's a little toggle switch in that box. And in the middle of the night, when you want to see something or read something, you just reach over and with about an ounce of pressure, go click and the lights come on. And little do you think, right, at that moment, that somewhere miles and miles and miles away, there's a dam holding back millions and millions and millions of gallons of water that's generating electricity that comes down to transmission stations, to transformers, down wires and power lines, to your house, through a baker box, through some power lines, so that switch can go and work. You don't think of the marvel of all those sequences to bring light. And most of us don't ever think about all the sequences of how God brings light to dead people, to blind people. And yet that's sort of what Paul does here in this, in this small section. He tells us the sequence of the light. So I want to unpack that for us and, and we'll, I'll give you a short little kind of depiction of the outline, then we'll pray together and see what God has to say. Look at verse 13. So let's, let's back up in chapter 10, verse 13, and see this amazing phrase that Paul kind of continues his thought in this next paragraph. He says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what's it say? 
will be saved. So with that in mind, now Paul begins this next section to draw out for us how that happens. I call it four perspectives from Paul about the sequence of salvation. The first one is what's necessary for someone to be saved. Secondly, it's, it's what we can expect from people when we share the hope of Christ. Third is the excuses people make. And the fourth is the amazing, unbelievable patience of God as he waits for rebellious people to come to their senses. Okay, so that's the depiction of it. So let me read this section, and then we'll pray together. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask that these will not understand. First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Can you pray with me? God, I thank you for uh, what we just read. Kind of behind the scenes of what you do to bring people to their senses and bring righteousness to sinners. Before we get started, we just want to say thank you because that's for, this, for those who believe, that's our story. So, God, I just pray uh, for us that we'd be reminded how great you are today. If there are those who don't know you, they'd be reminded how great you are today. And they would come by faith to trust in Christ, I pray. Amen. So, what's it, what, take, what does it take for us to be saved? What's necessary for salvation? Paul breaks it out in verses 14 and 15, and it's in response to verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The first thing he says is they have to call on Jesus. Now, I don't know who makes up the statistics of, of when you identify bodies of believer in the world, but there, there are some websites that still claim that 80% of Americans would call themselves Christians. But I'm not naive. I know why they would say that. Many of them are drawing their, that, that phrase to a heritage or to some experience or some affiliation, some mental ascent, right? Their upbringing. That's why, that's why they would say they're Christian. But to call on Christ is way more than knowing things about Christ. It's way more than just agreeing about the facts of Christ in the Scriptures, there are three words I'll give you to, to kind of define what it means to call on Christ. It, it is the, the, the idea of your mind and your will and your heart. It is really the ultimate kind of short paraphrase of the greatest commandment, to love your Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you call on Christ, Christ gets it all. He, he gets... Um, your mind as you think about him and your will as you choose him and your heart as you love him. That's the expression of the, of the call. Those who want him call on him and they are saved. It's not enough to sit in a church week after week, like maybe some of you do, and just hear about Jesus. 
It's not enough to know theology, good theology. It's not enough. It's not enough to be proud of what you know. To be saved, you must call on Jesus. It means to make him yours. It's personal. To admit that you're a sinner whose provision is Jesus, the only solution to the sin problem. It's calling on him, resting on, on that truth. So that's what he says in verse 13. You have to make him yours. You have to call on him. But here's the second thing he says in verse 14. He says, you must believe in Christ. Now, here's what he says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, I, I just said that trusting in Christ is more than the intellect, that it involves your heart, and that is true. But what Paul is reminding of us here in this, this phrase, uh, in believe, is that no one's saved simply by feeling their way to Jesus which is classically mystical. It's classically 60s drug culture. Like, just feel it, man. We'll get there. Like, being sincere gets you somewhere. And that's not what Paul suggests here for those who can call on Christ. You have to believe some things about Christ. Just like intellectual understanding without trusting with your full heart in Christ isn't saving faith, neither is committing to Christ without understanding it. Like, some people really feel that God gives points for sincerity, like they meant well, but they knew nothing of Christ. That doesn't happen. Here's what I want you to know. You, you can't call on anybody you don't know. You can't ask Jesus to save you unless you understand him to be the Savior as the Bible depicts him to be. James Boyce, he wrote some serious commentary work on Romans said this specifically about Christianity and this idea of believing on the facts of Christ. And this is what he says. One of the things that sets Christianity off from all other religions in the world is that it deals with the objective truth in the facts of history. Unless the facts are proclaimed, the message isn't Christian. Unless the facts are understood and believed in faith that follows is not true faith, regardless of its intensity. In other words, here's what he's saying, Right? You have to understand the declaration of Christ, that he came and lived and died and rose again, born of a virgin, a savior, God, the son, come to provide for salvation. Those are the facts of the stories. To take and pick and choose the pieces of Christ you like, leaving out the rest, isn't saving faith. You must call on the one who know and believe. You understand? And the way you believe is by the facts of the scriptures. Make sense? Let's add the third thing to, to Paul's uh, sequence. Calling on Christ, believing in Christ. Here's the third thing, hearing Christ. We're going to read 14 again. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Now, I don't know if you're a person that likes to highlight your Bible, but if you are, take a pencil and circle the word of in your text where it says of whom they have never heard and just draw a line through it. Because the word of does not appear in the Greek text. And here's why. This is important, okay? When you read it um, with the word of, it's suggesting the same idea of belief, right? How are they to believe? Of him they've not heard. It's like adding more information. I need to hear of the things of Christ, which is the same thing of belief. The word of doesn't appear. So here, how, this, listen how it reads now, without of. And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? The point that Paul is making is how a sinner comes to life, how dead people wake up is when Christ and his spirit speaks to the heart of sinful, broken man, period. 
Again, this is, this is the growing sequence of what it means to come to faith. And we discussed this uh, in Romans 9 specifically, that God is the one who transforms people's hearts. They're not good enough. They're not smart enough on their own. They can't sort out the pieces. They don't reach out for God. In fact, the, the text tells us we're at enmity. We're at war with God. We won't seek him. To those who are perishing, this is foolishness. It's only power to those who are being saved. And how are we saved? It's when God, through his spirit, the spirit of Christ, speaks to the soul of man. It's that weird little moment in my life in 1981 where sin the day before was no problem. Sin the day after crushed me. Who spoke that word? The Spirit of Christ. Just like every one of us in here, when, when, we, uh, when we don't remember how and why we got in the problems we are, and then God opens our minds to understand that truth. Even though we might not perceive clearly how to get out of our problem, conviction and guilt is the, is the beginning of that transformation. So the Bible makes it very clear. Paul makes it clear that you must hear from Christ. So watch how this works out. It's Christ himself through his spirit who speaks to the sinner. The sinner hears and according to the text, believes the truths about Christ he believes and he calls out for salvation, right? And this is an amazing, so what to all this? When Christ speaks to a sinner, everyone, everyone, without exception, he speaks to is saved. Anybody want to smile or anything? That's pretty good news there. God saves sinners. We don't save ourselves. And he always gets his man, the hound of heaven. When he speaks, he opens up blind hearts. Isn't that what Jesus said in, in John chapter 10, verse 27? My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. That's how this thing goes down. I speak, they hear, they're saved. So that's why that of confuses us a little bit. It's not just more information about Christ. It's hearing the call of Christ and responding in repentance and belief. And by the way, I was, when I was writing this down, I thought, oh, I better, I better make sure I say this so that people don't run too far with this. But there's a lot of people on television suggesting that hearing from Christ suggests that you can just make it up. You know, God told me, and then everything else they're about to say is crazy and absurd. Like, I just had a water fight with Jesus in the Crystal Sea. It was great. It was awesome. Now, you should laugh because that's absurd. But that's what's being sold out there. That as long as anyone tags what they're about to say with God told me, they can say whatever they want. Here's the specificness of this text. When God speaks, he speaks through his word and about his word. Nothing else is needed. No other, we talked about this two weeks ago. No other magic, no other mysteries, no other miracles. The miracle of the gospel through the communicated word of God is what God uses to open blind eyes. Okay? I just needed to say that and get it off my chest. I feel better. Thank you. Um, so we've got the calling of God, the belief in Christ. We've got the hearing Christ. But here's the fourth thing that Paul says. It comes by preaching Christ. Again, the end of verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone, without someone preaching? Now, Paul's main point here is this is the way God does it the absurdity of preaching. And I call it absurd because 
there are some that are super, super, super at least gifted, they seem to be, and some are who are that interesting at all, and yet God takes every type and shape and communicates his words of the foolishness of sinful man about the holiness and the provision of Christ, and people get saved. That blows my mind. Now, let me just say this. Um, there's part of me that thinks that books can preach, and I think they do a little bit, and uh, blogs and internet, um, things like uh, sermons online and TV preaching, movies, songs. I, I think they can preach a little bit, but what Paul has in mind in here right now is the supernatural verbal communication of the gospel in a mysterious moment called church. J.R. Packer said that preaching is an act of God, not the performance of man. I have always called preaching the hostile takeover of the heart because nobody comes prepared for preaching. Nobody does, not even me. You walk in, you had a bad yesterday, you had a bad today. You walk in and your mind's cluttered and somewhere else. You have no idea where God is coming in your life. You have no idea. And you haven't prepared yourself for it. The Holy Spirit doesn't care. He's coming. And somehow in the mystery of a moment like this, a variety of people, average guy speaking the profound truth of a holy God come for sinners. Some of you are hearing things and go, wow, that really encourages me, or I need to respond to that, or whatever. It's a supernatural moment, a Holy Spirit moment in a specific time. Like I've had people say, hey, I just, I just went to this church and I heard the most amazing message I've ever heard. You got to listen to it. I turn it on. I go, Whatever. Now, I'm not hard-hearted. I, I just know that one thing happens in the midst of a preaching moment like this. The Spirit arrives there, deals with a particular people at a particular time there. Now, is it good? Is it true? Yes. But the mystery of this thing is, is, is predominantly what he's referring to. And so let me make the obvious conclusions. A lot of people have decided to listen to two or three or four preachers in the world on the Internet and call it good, call it church, and it's not. We have to be disciplined enough to sit under this thing church. So I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're sitting here, so tell your friends, okay? Um, um, but let me tell you something else that's obvious. Preaching isn't just reserved for pastors. You preach. Every time you leave your house and go to work, you're preaching. Every time you go to school or get your car fixed at the mechanic shop, every time you uh, run around in your neighborhood, you are preaching Christ, potentially to your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors. Maybe you've heard this kind of pithy little Christian comment. I don't agree with it, but nevertheless, let's talk about it. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, there's a part of me that can understand the angle of that, meaning that should we live like Christ? Should people see an undeniable evidence that there's something different about our life? Yes. Yes, we should be different. But I want you to get this. Nobody gets saved unless you open your mouth and tell them that Jesus saves sinners. They might ask you how, how you're different. They might ask you why you smile. They might ask you how you deal with tribulation. But if you refuse to tell them, preach, they don't get saved. The sequence. So, isn't that what verse 17 says? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's add the fifth thing that Paul mentions here in, in verse 15. Paul says there's one last thing to this whole sequence of, of belief and salvation. He says that the church is sent. The church is sent. <clears throat> and how are they to preach? 
unless they're sent. So follow Paul's logic here. People have to believe in Christ before they can call on him. They must hear Christ before they can believe. There has to be preachers that, that uh, preach to people for them to hear. And if people are going to hear, the preachers have to be sent. Simple enough. When Jesus was on this earth, he trained his men. He died. He rose from the dead. He spent some time with his disciples. He's ascended to heaven. His last words to the church was, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are on his mission. We are the sent ones. Now, I know this is the classic missions passage, and we'll get to that in just a second. Every missions conference I've ever been to said, this is it, this is your call, and a bunch of people figuring out, where am I supposed to go in the world to obey this Bible passage? And I'm just saying, most of you will never be called to some foreign land. You're called to your land, and your home, and your work, and your friends, and your family, and every time you go, you're following this command. Every time. When you're on vacation, you're going. Now, let me give you another, another way to think about this, too. E even though I don't expect some of you to come up here and sign up for foreign missions, I want you to know that you go every time you give. We talk about generosity here, that God has saved us. Um, and it, as, a, as a giving God, we replicate that by being a giving people. And, and almost 11% of every dollar you give goes to the world in ministry. So if you choose to say, oh, listen, I'm not, I'm not engaged in tithing, I'm not engaged in giving, then you're choosing not to be at least participating at this level of going. Because you go every time a dollar goes to a missionary somewhere else, a place you will never go, you're going all over the world. We, we uh, deal with benevolence issues on a daily basis in all the redemption congregations, people who have none. They show up at the door and we feed them. We give them boxes of food. That goes on every day throughout the year. There is church planning. Clearly, we talked about that day with, with Tucson. We, we have missionaries in certain places in the world. Uh, there is foster care and adoption, and on and on and on and on it goes. I, I don't know if you've been on the website recently, but there is a page that Sean Mortensen put up that just expresses the, the ways in which Redemption Church is busy going. And so I thought I would just read a few of these things so you could hear where you're going uh, matters. We are involved with Wind Souls for God in Ethiopia that is working with child um, slaves and, and child prostitution. Um, we're partnering in Morocco to start business ventures to help bring the gospel to every area of life. We're starting physical clinics for those who are sick and infirmed. We're in Honduras to partner with caring for people and their medical needs. We are walking with leaders in Turkey and in China that are birthing new churches, teaching English as a second language, and, and discipling followers of Christ. We are working in what we call global cities where the world is coming to our cities like Phoenix and San Francisco and planning churches that have nothing to do with redemption specific. They are totally open-handed and blessing other places around our city and, and specifically in San Francisco. We are working with the Somali refugees here in Phoenix, teaching English as a second language as well as communicating the gospel. We're providing homes for international students and jobs for refugee farmers, as well as tractors and equipment that help them do their job better. We are uh, working with uh, local pastors in Ghana who are faithfully equipping their church to be faithful and follow Christ. We are caring for the many needs of the Latino community at the El Puente Center here in West Mesa, of which every, every month, the M25 Sunday, you bring groceries that goes to meet the the needs of, of those folks. We just sent a team to Alaska to the Tenalian Bible Camp, which reaches out to Bush kids who have been abused and hurt and left 
and uh, there's ministry going on there even as we speak. And that's a little bit. Every time you give, you go. You understand? So just like, just like Paul is laying out this argument, anybody who calls on him, they can have him. But they have to believe in him. And they've got to hear him. Right? And somebody has to go and tell them. Somebody has to preach. And we've got to send and that's our participation in it. But I, I want you to see how Paul now continues this thought where he, he talks about what we should expect, maybe, maybe uh, what we should get ready for. The first one, we love. The second half of verse 15. Let me read all the 15. How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the kind of the best possible case scenario. You're telling people the hope of Christ and they get it. And they turn from their sins and they trust in their Savior and they're going, you're awesome. This is awesome, right? I, I love that kind of phrasing, how beautiful are the feet. <laughs> feet are the ugliest part of the human body in my opinion, but yet feet are good looking when they come with the gospel. Sometimes we'll be sharing our faith and that's exactly what God do. He'll, he'll just do something. You'll say something that you don't even know what you said or how you said it. You didn't even understand it and God will use it to open their eyes and they'll look at you like their spiritual dad and say, thank you. Without you, I wouldn't know this. And so there's going to be experiences in the church's life when we are going and telling the hope of Christ where people will just respond. But there's another sad reality to what we do. And, and that is this, that the majority of people you talk to won't get it. Look, look what he says in verse 16. But they have not all believed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Remember, Jesus um, used a picture, a word picture to describe the kind of how this is going to go down in Matthew 7. He said, wide is the way, and many are those who choose it. It's the easy way, and many are on it that leads to destruction. He wasn't kidding. And narrow is the way, and hard is the way for those who find life. That's the percentages. We just got done with the, the, the sermons on the parables, and we went through the sermon on the soils, remember? Four different soils described, but Three of them were hard soil, troubled soil, and shallow soil, all of which don't respond to the gospel. When you're out there, hasn't this been your experience? You just felt like you wove together the most clear, precise paragraph on the gospel any human has ever heard. Ricochet. Nothing landed, nothing got in. To you, it's crystal. To them, it's foolishness. And as we go, we can't, we can't take our cues from their responses. Some will say, thank you, God bless you, I, I, God used you in my life, and some will just reject all of it, and they'll throw up a bunch of excuses like the shallow-hearted person or the trouble-hearted person, right? In fact, speaking of, speaking of excuses, Paul then starts talking about how Israel will make excuses against this gospel. Look what he says in verses 18 through 20 again. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not 
ask me, this is the excuses, obviously Paul's thinking of Israel here because 9, 10, 11 is a particular Hebrew-centric section, just to, to address the, the, the thought that, wait a minute, if God's making promises to the church and he hasn't followed up with Israel, how can we trust any of it? So he's telling us where Israel's coming back in. That was the part of last week's sermon you might have missed, but here's what he says. Israel's going to stand up and say, well, what gospel? We didn't hear that. We, we didn't hear it. And Paul brings up Psalm chapter 19. Now, if you, we don't have time to read it, but Psalm 19 breaks down in two particular categories, natural revelation and special revelation. In other words, creation and the word. And he uses that against this argument that I didn't hear it. And he's going, yeah, you did. You heard it. You heard it loud and clear, Jewish person. You know there's a God. And by the way, he gave you the law, the precepts of the Lord are right and true and give wisdom to the foolish. You know that there is a, there's an understanding there. And then they change the, they change the subject quickly. Okay, maybe we heard, but we, we didn't get it. We didn't understand. That's what he says in verse 19. And Moses, and Paul says, yeah, you did. That's why you got angry. If you didn't understand, why bother getting so upset? Why were you jealous? You were jealous and angry simply because you knew what he was talking about. What we're talking about is Grace. And if you're a Hebrew person and you've, you've spent your life thinking that because of your bloodline you have some immediate connection with God or because you seek him or you know him or you have the text that somehow you're a special different people, when Paul brings up the issue of grace, they go, we don't understand this. We deserve something more. And he's going, yeah, you did. You got it. And you were mad about it. And, and by the way, even though he's specifically talking about how Israel's responded to the gospel, these are the same excuses we make. You tell people about Christ, you tell them about the gospel, and there are going to be some who try that with God. I, I didn't know. And Romans 1 will be a convenient passage to pull up. Yeah, you did. You knew there was a God by what has been made. You are without excuse. You can't say there wasn't me. And you're going to try this one. I didn't understand, but yeah, you did. Because the gospel of God's grace is an offensive message. It's an offensive message because here's what it says fundamentally that you're far worse than you can even describe. That there's not one kernel, now listen to me, not one kernel, not one thought of goodness in you can, that can contribute to solving your sin problem. In fact, your thoughts just bury you. Nothing good ever. Romans 3, no one's righteous, not even one. Always thinking about evil at war with God as he extends himself to us in love and mercy. And when you preach the gospel of God's grace to a world who thinks they need a few tweaks and adjustments, it's offensive. Because what you're doing is you're pulling away everything. And that's how the gospel is had by everyone. If you come to him and recognize that truth and fall into his provision, you will be saved to anybody, no matter what train wreck you've been in. No matter how bad you've hurt yourself or other people, he saves those types. You understand? So I love how Paul finishes in verse 21. I love this because he finishes with a thought of God that I want us to leave with today. Here's what he says. But of Israel, he says, all day long, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Get the, just picture this. Israel had this 
unique privileged position with God. God showed up many, many times in a visible form to give them confidence and encourage as they would follow his commandments. And yet they wandered, they constantly wandered, their hearts were broken and twisted. And, and, and Paul reminds them, even though you're throwing down, I didn't hear and I didn't understand, God is sitting there with his people saying, I'm still waiting. Let me just transfer this because I don't think this is a Hebrew audience particularly. If you're sitting here denying Christ, there's only one reason you're allowed to take another breath. That's because God's patience is leaving room for you to hear, believe, and call on the name of Jesus. It's the kindness of God that doesn't crush you the minute you rebel. And that's true for all of us. Just, just imagine for a second. What we deserve for our sin is God's justice and wrath. And what's right is if he did it right away. But God waits, and the scriptures tell us his kindness and his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. All I can tell you is in 1981, I had lived 20 years sitting every week, three times a week, under the preaching of the scriptures. Stacking sin upon sin upon sin and not listening and not listening and not listening. Why didn't God wipe me off the planet? Because he's patient. Come on. So for those of us who are Christians, that should warm your heart because you're reflecting now on where you were when God found you. And that's good because worship should come out of you. For those of you who would say of yourself, I, I'm not a Christian, then I want you to know what you're experiencing right now, even in your stubborn refusal to believe, is the kindness of God leaving room for you to come to your senses and trust in Christ. And you can. You can. You believe the truth about Christ. You give your heart and life to Christ. You hear maybe right now for the first time in your life the very words of Christ moving in your heart and all you have to do is confess your sins and him is your savior and you go free. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your gospel. It truly is good news. It never gets old. God, we confess and apologize over and over again for our willingness and propensity to take it for granted, but it's wonderful news. And to us who, who know you as Lord and Savior, thank you for the reminder, the encouragement to love you more. For those who aren't, I pray, God, you would draw them to yourselves. It's because of Christ we pray these things.